Well, little theologians, everyone's using uh, your bulletin this morning, but I would like for you to listen carefully to this sermon. This sermon is about some uncomfortable subjects, death and money. But I want you to think about Christmas. It's about Christmas coming up. And I want you to think about the Christmas gift that you received uh, last year that was your, well, that's your favorite. Little theologians, you with me? Totally ignoring your parents right now. Have you noticed that? Last Christmas, a gift that you really liked. You got it in your head? Don't draw that. Draw the wrapping paper that it came in. Draw the clothes that your mom and dad were wearing as you opened it. Draw the, uh, uh, draw the clothes that you were wearing. You get what I'm doing here, right? It's not the present that was the most important thing. Draw something that you ignored while you were opening that present. See if you can't do that. We don't always remember the right thing. And this passage is about death and it's about money. But it's also about remembering the right thing because there's a woman in this passage who does it right. She knows what's about to happen to Jesus. And because of her, we can remember the right thing about Jesus. Our passage this morning is from Mark chapter 14. We're looking at the first 11 verses. Uh, Everything becomes really intense in these passages because we're getting closer and closer to, well, the death of Jesus. And we're in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Uh, When we look at this passage, uh, we are thinking death and money. Now, before I read this passage aloud to us, would you join with me in prayer as we look at God's Word? Would you pray with me? Our Father, help us to see what we need to see in this passage. To hear what we need to hear in this passage. Would you be with us in the reading, listening to the sermon, And going from here, the application of this passage. Would you help us to do this for your namesake? Amen. So again, Mark chapter 14. Let's look at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? This ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. They scolded her. Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, 
went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. This is the word of our Lord. There's a poem written about 20, 25 years ago by an American poet named Larry Levis. And he is uh, trying to eulogize uh, Walt Whitman. Uh, He says this, he says, uh, on Long Island they moved my clapboard house across a turnpike and then felt so guilty they named a shopping center after me. And that's what the poet says about Walt Whitman. No one's really thinking about this great American poet. In fact, uh, when he dies, they take his house, they move it across a turnpike, and then they name a shopping center after him. Now, Levis knows that Nobody walking in that shopping center ever gives a thought about Walt Whitman. He knows that nobody pays Whitman the respect that he deserves, and he knows that it'll cost a person everything to truly appreciate Whitman. But in this particular vignette, there's both death and there's money. A man dies. He's forgotten. And what he has left over, we just take and we turn it into a shopping center, And why do we do that? We do that for the sake of money. Now, I chose this uh, illustration quite a while back, but uh, reading more uh, this passage uh, over and over again, uh, even that sentiment, that, that bemoaning grief over the death of Walt Whitman and how he has not paid the respect that he is due, uh, even that, as kind as it is to the great poet, just fails to capture the moroseness of this scene. This passage is about death and it's about money. There's death all over the passage, beginning, middle, and end. Uh, There's money uh, hinted at the beginning, but certainly in the middle, certainly at the end. Those are two two things we just don't like to talk about. It's not merely uh, about uh, death, it's, a, it's about the kind of death, it's about the, the scene of death, preparation of death. When we talk about someone who has died, we always want to talk about the life that they lived. But this is about that actual death, and we never want to talk about that, do we? And how many times do we uh, sit with others and we uh, set a value on things, including our own salary, we talk about that. We don't talk about death. We don't talk about money. But it's all over this passage. And yet there's something so important in this passage, something so important that Jesus himself says that we need to remember, and it's there in verse 9, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. We remember something about death, something about money. What has she done? This woman who steals into a scene and does something that is absolutely striking, what is it that she's done? She's certainly recognizing Jesus, recognizing something about the life of Jesus. She doesn't build a shopping center in his name. She doesn't write a poem about how bad it is that nobody remembers him. Instead, she acknowledges with all that she is, that her entire life comes only because of his death. What she's done is she's remembered, she's remembered well, because what she rightly understands about her life is that her life 
begins where his life ends. That's what she gets. She gets that her life begins where his life ends. She has life and she understands the purpose of that life. Why? Because he died. Well, let's start at the beginning. Death is not just a part of the first two verses. Death is the very objective that is plotted by these two verses. Uh, This passage, it opens up with a plan, with a scheme. Now, I want you to hear this with Roman ears. To a Roman audience reading Mark's letter, uh, what they would hear in these first two verses would be an absolute affront. Uh, They would hear something that would cause them to clench their fists, to clench their jaws. They'd actually be offended by this. There's a secret plan that is being hatched in these two verses. It's secret. The public is not involved. Citizenry has nothing to do with this. It's powerful people. But this this plan, it's also a trick. The word for stealth could be understood as trick. There's a secret plan. The public's not involved. And not only that, religion is nothing but a cover. It's completely led by people of religious power, but they don't care about religion at all. They're hypocritical and sacrilegious. And not only that, injustice is their goal. They're not just seeking to arrest Jesus, they're actually desiring to arrest Jesus. And they're they're not just desiring to arrest him. Arrest is just the beginning. They want him dead. Now, to a Roman audience, as they're listening to these first two uh, verses, the, the, the jaws, they get clinched. It's a secret plan. Religion's nothing but a cover. And injustice, the death of an innocent man, is the very goal. Are you incensed by these first two verses? The original hearers, they would be. But there's a, there's, there's a real sense, however, that the original hearers would get this as being pretty typical. Because Mark's original audience knew what it was like to suffer persecution for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They knew what it felt like to have not just a secret antagonism towards them, but public antagonism towards them. To be singled out as Christian people and marginalized by the public as a result of which. They also knew that there was a kind of religion of the era that actually taunted them and hunted them down and justified those who were doing that. There was a kind of secularism that laughed at Jesus and all of those who would deem to follow him. They would feel this, and they certainly would know injustice. Even as they're listening to these first two verses, they would know what it felt like to have no freedom of religion. So just think about that for a moment, would you? That's the original audience taking in verses 1 and 2. They they hear this and they're uh, offended by it, but they would know that this is really how persecution sets in. But then there would be something upon reflection. They would consider that, wait a minute, it's it's actually a Jewish uh, holiday. I think we can presume the majority of Mark's audience is not a Jewish but Gentile. And they would think for a moment there's something about these first couple of verses that are important to notice, and they're right there. This happens two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And they would know enough to know that the Passover uh, was a time in which the goodness of God was commemorated. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the delivering power of God. This is a sacred event that's at the very core of what it means to be a Christian person. And Mark's original audience, they would uh, be offended by what they read about in verses 1 and 2. They would have, a, have a kind of a sense of what it's like because they themselves are enduring persecution. But they would stop at the fact that, wait a minute, it's a religious event. And it's a religious event at the core of the gospel. There's real wickedness in verses 1 and 2. This is what the Old Testament prophets did. They refused to follow God and they led the people astray. Mark's audience would know that there's great Old Testament wickedness right here in this passage. Now we're going to move to another scene that's quite different, but I want us to think about this. Do you wonder if the, the audience of Mark thought, is, is anyone going to do something to stop this? Is there going to be any justice? We watch a movie and we see this, uh, this uh, setup like this where there's all kinds of uh, secrecy and persecution and injustice and, and the bad guys are out to get the good guys. We know from the movie it's a setup. The bad guys are going to get in the end. But one wonders if the ire of Mark's audience are so uh, wound up in verses 1 and 2 that they might begin to think, wait a minute, are the disciples going to stop this? Is God, is God going to stop this? And then look at verse 3. In verse 3, you don't see any action in which the plot is actually uh, going to be thwarted. And we open in verses 1 and 2 that death is plotted, but in verse 3, we're now taught that death is anticipated. Death is plotted in the first section, verses 3 through 9, death is anticipated. And I want us to notice how quickly everything changes in verses uh, 3 and 4. And notice that Jesus is not even in Jerusalem. Jesus is outside of Jerusalem. And there seems to be no more plotting. This isn't a scene, is it, about the plotting of the religious leaders. Jesus, he's outside Jerusalem, a small village called Bethany. And he's in a house. He seems to be very safe. He's surrounded by, by people. He's in a happy setting. The house is owned by Simon the leper, someone who perhaps was well known to the believers uh, whom Mark is writing to. Uh, there's a, a woman. Uh, this woman is uh, likely Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus. And there's this horrible thing that is happening. Men who are plotting for the arrest and the death of Jesus. And we go to this scene in a house where what is Jesus doing? It's right there in front of you. He's reclining at table. I'm angry. I want to stop what's happening in verses 1 and 2. And I'm sure that the recipients of Mark's letter, they're angry too. But Jesus, he's reclining. And they're all eating. And Mark, he wants us to see this contrast. And I'm going to prove to you that Mark wants us to see this contrast by asking us to jump forward to verses 10 through 11. Because this is a three-part sermon, but I am uh, not going to dive into the second part right now. Let's, let's just jump forward to that third part and just see if I confuse uh, everyone here. I know there's a lot of sermon discussions that happen uh, after uh, Sunday morning. 
The passage, it opens in the first two verses with a scene in which death is plotted. And then you have something in the middle that's different. Death is anticipated. But look where we end up at the, at the very end in verses 10 through 11. Another two verses that are just like verses 1 and 2. Death is again plotted. As scholars actually call this the Markin Sandwich. Isn't that silly? Mark and Sam. There has to be a better name for this. But Mark will often uh, take these scenes and he'll have the, the beginning of one scene and then another scene and then the completion of that first scene. And it really looks like a sandwich. And what I'm doing is I'm, I'm starting with the main point of death plotted in verses 1 and 2. But look at 10 and 11 and you'll see death is plotted there as well. It seems as though Judas, though, is the plotter here. Uh, Judas, Mark tells us quite plainly in verse 10, is one of the twelve. Before it was the religious leaders, these uh, seeming outsiders to the ministry of Jesus. But here we have an insider, one of the twelve. And we can look at John's gospel and at Luke's gospel, and Satan himself has entered one of the twelve. So Judas is here, one of the twelve, and Satan is here. And Judas, he deliberately goes to the chief priests. And he has a deliberate plan in his mind. He's all about focus. And look at the chief priests. We're never told this about the chief priest. And in fact, in verses 1 and 2, you'd never think of a chief priest being glad. But here they are. They're glad. It's like a dream come true. There's a celebration of sorts. There's a, a promise of money. Notice how Mark communicates to us that they are the ones who willingly give the money. It's about four months of wages we hear from other Gospels. But verse six, uh, ver, the, uh, Mark tells us that from this moment, he seeks an opportunity to betray Jesus. The religious leaders have a purpose in life. Kill him. But look at Judas. He has a purpose in life as well. To kill Jesus. That's the Markin sandwich. You see that? There's, there's death that's plotted at the beginning, death that's plotted at the end. Now, I want to go back to that second main point. Let's return to the house, verses 3 through 9. And instead of plotting, we actually have a very simple action. Instead of plotting, there's an action. A woman appears in verse 3. And she doesn't scheme. She doesn't share the intentions of her heart verbally. She simply acts. She takes a flask of perfume. And Mark is very liberal with the details here. She takes a flask of perfume. And we can look in John's gospel and we, we get a value for that flask. It's about 12 ounces of perfume or about a year's wages. And she breaks the flask. Mark tells us that. She breaks the flask. And she pours it over his whole body, starting from the top. If someone shares plans, you can critique those plans. If someone is plotting, they're ruminating, and they're speaking their plans, you actually can stand next to them. You can take it in. You can listen. And then you can fine-tune. You can correct those plans. But she just acts. Now, this is very important for us to see. The application of the passage is somewhere in this scene with her actions because Jesus has told us to remember what she does. This is not a small matter. 
almost automatically this woman does something that is amazing. And notice that we're told what the religious, religious leaders are thinking. Notice that we're told what uh, Judas is thinking. But we're not told what she's thinking, are we? But in order to do what she is doing, she has to understand three things. And let me mention them quickly, but I'm going I'm to conclude here later in the sermon. She understands that Jesus must die. And Jesus says it himself, that she is anointing his body for burial. She's not going to plot his death. She already knows he has to die. That's the first thing she understands. She understands that Jesus must die. She also understands this. She understands that something she has done is the cause. Listen to this. She understands that Jesus is worth more than the value of the ointment. It's not even close. She breaks the flask never to replace that ointment. She understands that Jesus is worth more than the value of that that ointment. But that ointment is the most valuable thing she owns. So she understands that Jesus is more valuable than anything that she owns or could possibly own which means she understands that Jesus is more valuable than all that she is. She knows that she pales in comparison to the value of Jesus. She not only understands that Jesus must die, she understands that there's something about her that is ruinous in its value, less in its value, and that too, well, that too, must die. She understands that she somehow is the cause of that death. Somehow, something about her does not mean that Jesus gets to live. That's the second thing. He must die, and she's somehow the cause. And the third thing she understands is this. She actually understands how to live. Now, Jesus says this himself, that what she is doing is beautiful. She understands what a beautiful life is. A beautiful life is one that gives everything that one has and is to Jesus Christ. She understands that he must die. She understands that she is somehow the cause of that death. And she understands what a beautiful life is after his death. Now, we're going to come back to this list. But I want us to notice that the others in the house, they don't quite get what she gets. And what happens is there's a kind of plotting that opens up in this house. Remember the plotting, it took place uh, elsewhere. But it seems to be there's some, some plotting. Maybe it's inadvertent plotting. The ordinary followers of uh, Jesus in this house, they actually scold her and they chastise her for not caring for the poor. And really what it is, is that they have a a better plan for human life. They perhaps themselves know that Jesus must die, or certainly know that he is about to die. But there's something about the seriousness of that death, the power of that death, that leads them to jump into this scolding and chastisement. Because 
surely there's something better that can be done with that ointment. I had uh, Tracy read uh, Deuteronomy 15 earlier in the service because I don't want us to think that the poor uh, should be neglected. Uh, Jesus knows that the poor are to be cared for. That's a command of Deuteronomy 15. But Jesus says that uh, caring for the poor with this money would be a waste. What do you think he means by that sentiment? This woman is doing something that all of us should do. All of us should uh, leap right into poverty in this moment. Nobody has anything. Nobody can do anything. Jesus is everything. And there's something about poverty that we all need to embrace if we are to embrace Jesus Christ. We, we need to acknowledge that all of us are poor. And right in front of their eyes, this woman, she pours out all of her wealth. And when she does that, all of us are given permission to say, Jesus, I'm poor. I have nothing. And I need you. You know, what she's done is remembered because she understands that her life begins where Jesus' life ends. You see the plotters at the beginning, religious leaders plotting to maintain their own understanding of who Jesus is and where Jesus belongs, dead in the ground. And they believe this because they refuse to repent. And they notice the plotter at the end, Judas Iscariot. He has this great purpose in his life. He has something to do uh, with uh, uh, his skills and his uh, relations. What an opportunist. New purpose in his life. Why does he have this purpose? Because he refuses to repent and believe. So I want to ask us. This woman rightly understands that her life begins where his life ends. But do you believe that? And do I believe that? In this moment, in this house, would you and I be looking for that which we had previously called most precious and emptying it upon Jesus? She understands that Jesus must die, and so she anoints his body for burial. But do you understand that? Do you understand that the death of Jesus is not by chance, it's, it's not an unhappy coincidence. It's not the, the, the uh, angular process of a timeline. Do you understand that he had to die, that this was the design of God, that he must die in this particular Passover season? Do you believe that this morning? He had to die in order to fulfill the purposes of God. Let me ask you a second question. Do you understand that your works are the cause of his death? Do you understand that nothing that you have and nothing that you can do holds any value with God? Do you understand that grace isn't an option and that grace isn't something that's directed to others? You need grace. You are lost without it. And she understands that. This morning... Do you understand that you have nothing that earns God's favor? And the third thing is this. She understands what a beautiful life is. 
A beautiful life is one that uses all that she is and all that she has to the glory of Jesus. And I wonder if this morning, you who profess faith in Jesus Christ, if you measure your own life this way. Think about the season that we're about to enter. Do you understand what the beautiful life is? It's one in which everything, even your own identity, is given to Jesus and Jesus alone. I have to ask those three questions because Jesus said that where the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, she will be remembered. And I ask those questions that you would remember her. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful for our sister. In a moment in time, showing us what is important. Would you help us to do likewise. We thank you for saving us in Jesus. And we thank you for coming again. In his name, amen.